Aguilar, Wallace to his left, and he's on his way. 10, 9, 5, 3, cut down! Wonderful try! We have a mole, Jim. Digs like a demented mole there. He just bursts through the defence. Just watch this. Spillane gathers beautifully. In go the Irish forwards. This is Lenahan. Bursting into the 22. Back to Bradley. Back to Kiernan. The drop of goal is over. Michael Kiernan has done it. Good evening and welcome to the Molecast. Good evening. Good evening. Uh, so Ireland uh, made the big, heavy, uh, jaw-breaking French pack run around all day, keep the ball in play, and they didn't have the legs for it, and they couldn't blast us in the scrum. How do we make sure we do this to every team who's bigger than us? Great question. Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> like, tell me about the, how, 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 how do we manage this? How, 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 come, how can you turn up the level of ball and play from whatever an average of like 38 minutes last season to 46 minutes in this game. Some of it is down to refereeing and there's a greater emphasis on just the play being quicker, but that's, that's kind of incidental. Um, don't kick it out is the first thing and don't knock it on yeah, is the second thing. A flawless handling game. Um, like the level of skills was absolutely phenomenal. Um, we were fortunate to be at the match and fortunate enough to be very low. Um, like row B, which is kind of lower even than you'd be at a normal match if you went and stood on the sideline. One, you're sitting down, but secondly, the seats are, I don't know if recessed is quite the word, but they're... They're, they're soccer seats. It's quite low to the ground. They're, they're, they're kind of below the level of the pitch, on, or that's that's what it seems like. You yeah. know? You're not elevated at all. Um, so it's not like you're sitting in like a, an old dugout at... Uh, where, where did Luton used to play? <laughs> like in other ways, Kenilworth Road. Kenilworth Road. <laughs> yeah, maybe Kenilworth Park, I believe. Uh, Kenilworth Square. <laughs> um, or maybe even Old Trafford. Like he used to be really low down. Like yeah. just the head looking out at, at the level of the pitch. But it is it is quite low, and the, the game is really quick. But none of the passes seem to go above shoulder height. So just just to go back to it, I would say when you kick the ball, don't kick it out. Don't let there be line outs formed and play against a team that is, you know, the, the opposition have to sort of follow suit. So, like, we talked a, a few times last year about France's kicking game, that they just put it straight down the middle of the park and they sort of, they engage you in kick tennis, but they're waiting for the crowd to get bored and to sort of put you under pressure that you'll kick it out just because, God, I have to do something. Um, and then no knock-ons. So very few scrums and very few breakdowns that resulted in those crumbs. So I guess there are two of the things, really aggressive chasing to put their kicking game under pressure so that they don't have time to sort of pick out their spot and that you're covering the backfield. And that's a combo because you need some guys up front doing the chase and some guys sitting back to uh, cover the backfield. And the other thing that struck me re-watching the match was that Ireland didn't really compete for the ball on the ground all that much at all. And didn't choke tackle either. So they they had a defensive line set. They had a lot of guys on their feet a lot of the time. Um, they weren't getting... It's, it's, it's kind of rare that teams get penalised for handling in the rooks, but it does happen. But it, it cut out a source of penalties. 
you get penalised more when you have the ball and you're going to turn it over. So Ireland only gave away seven penalties. So it wasn't that there was a lot of opportunities for France to get them into touch. But just going back to the breakdown, what Ireland did do was compete in the rook um, just by pushing. And they, James Ryan, Josh van der Fleer, uh, Keelan Doris who seemed to do everything, um, Ronan Kelleher, all made effort to push the French guys back onto their ball. And what that meant was that France put more guys into the rook and sandbagged. So France often would have three, four, sometimes even five guys, five is a bit, of a bit high, but often have up to half their pack in, engaged in the rook and on the ground. And if they're on the ground, they're on top of each other. Um, and it, it seemed to me to be like a tactic because we played really differently than we played against Wales. So by sort of putting a bit of pressure on DuPont um, and a team that probably wanted an opportunity to slow it down, we were going, no, no, hurry up. And by, by making them hurry up, they ended up going down to the ground. So whether it was like a conscious tactic to make them go on the ground or whether that was just an outcome of a decision from us to try to put them under pressure at the rook by pushing them back, the effect was their forwards had to get up and down more than they would have been expecting to. Yeah, Josh Rodden-Fleer spoke, uh, I think, last year, maybe at the start of this season, about how there was one season where he couldn't buy a penalty at the breakdown for going for jacklings. He said, that's just because I wasn't very good at it. So he started barging the rock, and that was the phrase he used was barging it. And he goes, it was just much more effective in terms of slowing their ball down. So I think it is something that's coached. And I think between that and like avoiding, avoiding scrums through our own excellent handling, but also they committed very few knock-ons the French, and then we didn't try and choke tackle, because you're going, Why, what's, the, what's the positive about a choke tackle? They get a scrum where they have a huge weight advantage. So uh, I think that we did game plan that particularly well. And then the team is very um, uh, mentally agile and that they, they can take on a game plan and a coaching on a week-to-week basis, which is a great strength. Can you tell me a little bit more about how different we we played against France than we did against Wales so I watched the squid rugby piece uh, about the Ireland Wales match and I was kind of struck by Jenny I I almost agree with him but I've watched the match fairly slowly not as slowly as he has and I disagree with who Ireland were targeting so what squid was saying was that Ireland were taking a close in and running repeatedly at the Welsh front five defenders. And my take was, no, they were running at the Welsh back row. Uh, And it might have been front five guys were getting over to make the tackles in close, but Ireland made... Look who made the most tackles in that match. Toby Faletau, 21. Look at the amount of tackles that Justin Tipperick made, 14. And he was taken off on 50-something minutes. And their other back row, Morgan, Morgan, made about 15. But he was on for pretty much the entire match. Every line-out, Ireland got a lot of line-outs against Wales where it was taken down and sort of shaped them all. And then one of the forwards, be it Vanderfleer, be it, be it Sheen, who's quick, uh, who was at the back of them all, took off from that and ran around and just ran straight at their back row. And we had so many times where we'd take one-out runners and we'd run straight at their back row. And, we just, and to my mind, that was to take away their jackling threat. So if you're watching Leinster play the Ospreys and look, at it's a second-string Leinster team 
but like it was really caused problems over Wales and you're there going like the second string Leinster team is pretty good like this is this is kryptonite to Ireland like if you slow down Leinster's rook time if you slow down Ireland's rook time like the whole game becomes less effective so you go well who's the biggest threat to our breakdown and you go it's it's Tipperick and Faletau it's it's their back row so we are gonna so so that was one element is make them tackle the far more, the far funnier element to that was that not only did we make Tipperick tackle, once he had tackled, uh, Finney Beelham just came in and lay straight on top of him. So that's why I think that we are running at their back row and not their front row. Because Beelham, like he does it about three times and it's really funny uh, when you're either re-watching it or it's on the second time where you're going like, that's that's your game, you know? So he, he made that wonderful offload against France, but like his his tactic for the Welsh match was uh, Finlay. It's just... See the off lads, Andy? And she goes, no, Finlay, I want you to lie in Tipperick. <laughs> <laughs> that's your game. That's, that's the big thing for you to do this, this weekend. He's a very versatile player. He fucking is a versatile so player. So against Wales, Ireland attacked with a lot of one-out ball and ran at their back row. And against France, we didn't play much one-out stuff at all, bar when we're like five metres from their 22. Like we we moved the ball, very consciously moved the ball. And even in James Lowe's try, it was a it was a but it was a turnover. And we went down the blind side to widen out the entire pitch to the stage where Ringrose's last patch passed to Lowe. Lowe was right on the touchline. It's a really long pass from Ringrose. Like Lowe is purposefully there. We have purposely moved from a little bit, you know, say the 15 of the right hand side of the pitch gone down the blind side all the way over to the right-hand touchline and we've put our left winger all the way over on the left-hand touchline, which is not an accident. So we consciously played miles wider a week later against France than we did against Wales. That's very interesting. Um, Is fitness something that we can safely say Ireland have more of amongst their first team than than France and Wales? Yes. Because in both games, there was a late fourth try and just a late period of concerted pressure after a a less than steady uh, third quarter. Definitely. Um, At the match, and Carl turned around to me, uh, in the last 10 minutes he just said they are he said shattered in probably less parliamentary language than that uh, and they absolutely looked it they looked like every shattered team looked where they're just they're blowing they're walking to the breakdown and they're kind of teapotting and re-watching the match that struck that was that was definitely a feature but it wasn't just the first half it was the last four to five minutes sorry the second half it was the last four to five minutes of the first half Ireland uh, which I, I'd sort of forgotten because it was we were at the other end of the ground watching it, so it was kind of difficult to know just how close to the line we were when you're not elevated. And we were, like, we were held up three times, four, four times. times, attacking France. Like, we were all over them going into that last, uh, that last four or five minutes of the first half. So, again, like, that would be sort of customary that you go, the last... F- five minutes of the first half, the last 10 minutes of the second half, that's when you see a team that's fitter. And the other thing is just like Hugo Keenan was magnificent. And the more the game had ball and play time, the more everyone else got tired, the better and better he looked. 
because like fitness is his best thing. Um, he'll make breaks after an hour that he wouldn't make after the first five minutes because his fitness is high and he hasn't fatigued as much and he's playing against guys who have fatigued but who are as fast or faster than him uh, at the beginning of the match. All the best stuff that France did uh, seemed to come, well, from Dumarie, Dupont and Penault. It was much more broken than it usually is for France and much, uh, I guess we took away the set piece by not having any. But um, I don't know, how, how did you think France played? I find it hard to sort of analyse how France played without saying that like I enjoyed the match so much and I thought they played a big part in it. As a, it's it's sort of I watched uh, I was at the match and then I, and I watched it again and I was really concentrating on how well Ireland played and France to me when their their journalists were interviewing some of their players afterwards and uh, for example Jalon said you know we got beaten today by a better team there's no need to throw out the uh, dishwater with the baby that you know a lot of the things that they've done are right and they didn't think they played badly and I don't think they played badly either I felt that they ran more from their own half than I expected them to they've been so disciplined with kicking down the middle um, for you know three years they were really like the last time I remember in, um, do you remember Johnny Wilkinson kicked down the middle for the Lions in 2005 all the time? And I hadn't seen a team do that until three years ago as much as, as France have done it. But they attacked now. They had an unbelievable try. Penno's try was sensational. That could have, and it was the sort of unstructured rugby that could have happened in any game of rugby in the history of the Five Nations. It was just blinding French attacking rugby with a classic his support line of being directly behind Jelanche is so French. Jelanche's pass is almost directly towards his own dead ball line. That blind pass he threw to um, to uh, Penno. And then Penno just sort of running out of the clutches of other players. It looked like it happened in the 80s. It was sensational. Um, their game plan, I felt, was... I don't know if they if they had a, if they set out to play Ireland in a different manner or not, but I felt that they looked more unstructured than they have in in a in a long time under Galtier. So I was um, yeah I didn't I didn't think they played badly. And the other thing which was struck me, I'm sure we'll talk about it more, is like how how good Dupont is and how amazingly well he plays when the field is broken aside from his excellent basics when in sort of regular play his his really good kicking game his tackling which is amazing and then his lovely passing like what that guy isn't that guy's the best scrum half i've ever seen uh i made notes after the match last year and what I said summary-wise was France extremely physical. Dupont, Entomac, and Penno are the piano players. Jaminet kicks the points. Wacky wins the lineouts. France comfortable without the ball. Ireland unable to sustain pressure with ball in hand against France. Very little deception and few decoys. France run at Carberry a lot. Ryan very physical for the second week in a row. So, um, look, you, you know, sub in 
du, du Maurier for was it Du Maurier for Daphne Du Maurier. Yeah, I keep on having that Du Montier for for Entomac. Um and you still have, but like we've said that repeatedly about France that those three guys uh, make them tick, and everybody else is kind of their supporting cast, um, and that they they focus on place kicking. That we didn't give them very many lineouts, and I think the fact that they're comfortable without the ball was uh, there's a big emphasis on Sean Edwards, full stop, as there often is with the team that he's coaching that. They're they're happy to defend, uh, and Wales were sort of like Wales were like that as well. Like Wales were like that against England. They were just happy to defend and, and soak up pressure. And um, you know, are, is is France's structured attack as as good as it could be with the players that they have? I I don't know if it gets enough bandwidth or attention or concentration, given that defense seems to win out for them. Um, but Ireland have got much better. So that comment about Ireland unable to sustain pressure with ball in hand against France, very little deception and few decoys. Um, whereas this match, Ireland were like Ireland are really well coached. Ireland know what they're doing in different parts of the pitch. Their their structure is so flexible that it, it allows for different things to be done. Even off restarts, like McCluskey, France kicked a lot to McCluskey. McCluskey tri- sort of trucks it up. He gets tackled. We give it to Sexton. Sexton feeds it to Byrne. And oftentimes, Byrne just runs and takes a rook. And we get it into the middle of the pitch, widen out the angle and kick. But at one stage, Byrne threw it out the back for James Lowe, who'd tripped over somebody. And the ball went to ground. And we had to scramble and pick Mm -hmm. it up again. But it was evidence that, even for a team that doesn't want to play that much in its own half against France, we're prepared to move it. So that side of our game has really improved. The other thing is that... I remember being spitting at that match about how crap Carberry was. So like that sort of very little deception and few decoys. Like I don't think he, he had organized anything around him whatsoever. And like what's different is that he's he's been dropped from the the match day squad. We talked about that. I remember quite clearly talking about that afterwards and looking at the effect that had on the backside side of him because we played Wales the previous week and we were saying, look how many times Bundyaki got on the ball and was around it might have been like 25 or 30. And then, you know, so when when Sexton was playing, the whole team was ticking around him. And then when Carberry stepped in for that French game, Carberry tackled well in that game, I remember, actually, and kicked goals. He got a lot of opportunity. They ran at him all day, yeah. Yeah. Um, but our, our backline attack was just like, this is, this is just not working in any way the same, uh, uh, to the same capabilities that I had the previous weekend. Um, the other thing which I, I meant to say and I think I said it before in the match was like France have played so many of their games at home in 2022 that I felt that they were not going to be as good a team on the road and that's a, like, that's not unusual for any international team but I, I felt that France's you know outstanding record of so many wins was was built on having quite uh, like a, a soft summer tour and quite an easy schedule during uh during 2022 so it's you know for them uh to retread all ground they're playing their the world cup on home soil uh so it's sort of a moot point but i thought going into that game that we could beat them and i didn't expect us to play quite that well we're such a we're so much confidence at the moment with you know even the amount of times we were held up 
like it's been mentioned a few times in the well not more than a few times in the aftermath but it's not like we were really really ruining it or anything like that we're just going up oh, there's another one of these around the corner you know it's not like and then also you know how many times did france make a genuine uh, try scoring opportunity in the game you know it's like how many 22 uh entries did they have or how many how much how much could they put pressure on us through uh where they played on the pitch and it wasn't very you know it wasn't very often that's not to say that they're not a dangerous team because we saw that they can like the uh they can still play the old french way and break from deep and they have like du mortier's run in the second half down the left wing was his balance is just amazing you know but i felt that there was a weakness there. I decided to jockey back and forth between points. There was a weakness there in that when he's still a, he's still a very young player, young and inexperienced. And in the second half, when France were getting a bit leggy there, defence of the backfield left just huge spaces open to kick to, which was exploited by both the Irish substitute halves and by Hugo Keenan. You know, there's just an awful lot of, of space to kick into and and just for us to put them under territorial pressure. Like, uh, the last 20 minutes was, was played in the 22 in front of us. Yeah, that, that was one of the points, uh, so I suppose you just made it, but France went with a 6-2 split. So once they took off Ramos and put on Jaminet, you're, you're kind of wondering why. Like, do they... Um, like, if that's your plan... What did you think the match would look like? But anyway, uh, yeah, it just it just meant that you had a guy who's not certainly a natural defensive fifteen. He might give you a second uh, choice as a as a receiver, and he might give you more creativity. But if you're not ready to play from your own twenty-two, and if you're not as fit as the team that you're playing against in the last twenty minutes, that's risky. Um, not a great look for the fullback. I had a thought. This is one of my surprise questions. <gasps> and it's more of a thought, and it might not even be a question. It's more of a statement. Four points. I, I've been, I was thinking about how, I was thinking about um, the conversation that's constantly had about Roman and Timac and your, uh, the way you said he, he's very disciplined and he keeps on kicking it down the middle when perhaps people don't expect him to. Like, he has the best... Uh, pedigree like his dad was an incredibly handsome stylish French winger from the heyday of like uh, stylish French wingers in the 90s but like Romain Entomac for France just boots the ball all day and they have a bruiser pack they love set pieces and they love kicking their penalty goals and they have lightning fast wings why like that's how England should play all the time except minus all the sexy and like it's roughly the same kind of rugby like the France team I think Galtier is extremely pragmatic and he knows he's got a couple of gems. He's like three piano players and 12 piano carriers in that team. But they're, they're, they're very... He has a kind of brief to win the World Cup and it's, it's almost like it's... Jack Chirac's not the president. What's his name? That little fella everyone hates. Sarkozy. Sarkozy's got The current one? Yeah. No. Uh, Macron. Macron, Macron yeah. Monsieur Macron. Everyone hates him. Um, no, I just, <laughs> I got, you got voted yeah. back in. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like everyone hates him in France anyway. <laughs> um, and it's, it's, like, it's yeah. like, you know, we need our, our most 
a heavily spectacled technocrat in here to uh, like no more of your fucking around with these crazy coaches who get fired by their own squad halfway through a tournament. Um, I just I just think they're they're the pragmatisma. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I was I think prosaic is too it's too loaded, but they're extremely pragmatic. That team they are they love kicking points. They love their. I mean, maybe I'm doing Roman Intimac a disservice, but I just think they're, like you said, they don't have to have good away form because all their important matches from here on in are at home. Yeah, well, I think like I think Intimac, I never expect him to be as disciplined as he is. Like when he plays for Toulouse, he plays differently. You know, he's much more of a running threat. He plays a lot more off the cuff. And when he plays for France, he's really uh, disciplined in terms of kicking that ball down the middle and... Um, and that's like that's the main feature of his game for France. So I think you're absolutely right. They are a pragmatically coaching, team, which I completely see the value of. I'm a huge fan of pragmatism in coaching. I'm a huge fan of taking points. You know, that's how France kept in touch with us. I was really surprised actually to see Galtier take off Ramos after he slotted a drop goal, 61 minutes. So to bring them back within six with 19 minutes left. And he, he immediately whipped him off after that. In, in one of those... Like, why would you take your goal kicker off after 61 minutes? Like, on, on my question, which I posed earlier off, off uh, Mike, was like, if, if they'd won a penalty in that position and he'd kicked three points, would, would uh, Galtier have subbed him off, do you think? But no, no, but he, he might have been going to take, because Jaminet's a good kicker. Yeah. Anyway, so... Jalibert. Oh, sorry, Jalibert. Yeah. My mistake, yeah. Mistaken identity. Um... No, you wouldn't take him off. And France were choosing to kick at the posts mm. from the penalties. So I thought it was I thought it was funny because I thought that was quite a good decision to get like they're they weren't really banging on the door. They were stuck around thirty-five meters out in the middle of the pitch, not going anywhere. And he took a snap drop goal. And I thought like there's plenty of time left. This isn't like a, a position where you know you've only you know three minutes left and you're you're settling for a losing bonus point. It's just getting your back, getting yourself back in touch. Um, so, yeah, I think I think there's a few, a few more questions around France. Um, after that game, than there have been. They'd been very fated. And one of my friends was in touch with me before the game, saying, "Oh, you're you're more negative in France than most people." And I said, "I don't think I am that negative. I think, I think that there, like, I think that's that was me being pragmatic." Okay, one of the things that um, is frequently touted on uh, the internet by watchers of rugby is the idea that the Italian game is a, time, a, cha- a chance to hand out caps like confetti and like, you know, so should someone start this, the Italian game, as in like it's the, you know, the dud of, the, of them. It's debutante's ball. Yeah, <laughs> when there's, well, there's, when there's, a, when there's a, a, you know, a potential grand slam on the cards, having beaten, you know, uh, one in a tough away game and then one, a, one against the Clarence Grand Slam champions. Um, my point, and it's not really a question again, but I'll just ask you to talk Get about it. Get it out there. People keep people. People, <laughs> much is made of the, the need to give people opportunities. They need to give players like Ross Byrne opportunities to start or um, Craig Casey or such and such. These are the opportunities. The games where they come in to cover someone from injury, they are the opportunities. 
It's not like you have to manufacture the opportunities. The opportunities come along, and Farrell is asking these players to be ready when they come along. And that's, and they, I mean, that's what is one of the impressive things about the brilliant Irish performance is the number of players who took their opportunities. Oh, I agree. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely agree with you. Um, it's up. It's up to like a lot of people. Uh, people just get bored with selection and they want to see change for change's sake, or they want to see changes to include players that they like. That's grand. Everyone has an opinion and entitled to air it. But like the the job of the international coaches win today and win tomorrow. You, like you have to win all your matches because once you don't win a match, you get fucking far more questions raised than is of any benefit to you. So injury has been a big selector for Farrell this term out. The main ones being uh, Finley Bealham replacing Tyke Furlong and Conor Murray replacing Jameson Gibson Park. Would there have been others? Like he's made some decisions himself. I'm not saying he's abdicated responsibilities, throwing his hands up to the sky. He made the choice to go with McCloskey over over Aki, and he made the choice to go with Ross Byrne over Joey Carberry. Those are you know relatively big decisions. Certainly, Ross Byrne over Joey Carberry was a that's a significant change. Carby had been the, the second choice Irish out half for you know five years essentially. But the huge positive, and you know we would have been fucked if it was a negative. It has been Finley Beelham getting out there. Uh, up to this point, up to this championship, he had never started a Six Nations games. He'd played in four games against the All Blacks. So he started, he'd, he'd won four games against the All Blacks off the bench but he hadn't started in the Six Nations. Um, he's now started two matches, including one game against the French, who would be one of the heaviest uh, packs and biggest scrummaging uh, packs in the world game. And he stood up really well. Uh, now, if he hadn't stood up well, like there'd be, we'd be in trouble because we're not loaded down with other options. Tom O'Toole came on and did extremely well, carrying the ball and showing great energy which is his best thing. Like his, you know, his scrummaging is, is like Marty Moore's the scrummager in Ulster and Tom O'Toole is the carrier. That's what it is. Um, but with regards to the Italian game, no, like Farrell's job is, is just to win, to win all the games, especially with a grand slam on the line. So the team is playing really well. And like, it's like when you've, you know, if you, if, like when you're playing rugby, you want to play with the same players a lot if you're winning. You know, a team is more than just a selection of players. There's a, there's a sort of a, you know, there's a psychological tie and there's a friendship bonds and everything like that. But it is about uh, a team ethos of doing things in the particular moment. And when they're successful together, you just try and keep that team together. The other thing I'd say to bear in mind is that the World Cup squad, because it comes up a lot, is, is only 33 players. So that's a match day 23 plus 10 players. So bearing in mind the match day 23 against France, and you could add in injured players like Keane Healy, Dan Sheehan, Tyke Furlong, Jameson Gibson Park, uh, Robbie Henshaw. And then you're going, like, I'm only looking for five more players. You know, so like the net has been sort of thrown wide in previous seasons, 
and uh, and now it's about narrowing the net. And one of the features of Farrell's regime is that I think he's a very good selector, and he's he's not he's not afraid to make decisions, but he's quite a I don't know what you might say. Um, he doesn't he doesn't make experiments with guys out of positions. He tends he tends to just play players in his best position, and I think to that it. The difference between maybe him at the beginning and uh, not too long into his in, into his regime was um, was Hugo Keane because he played Larmer and he played Stockdale at fullback when he first started off. Neither of them are fullbacks, and it was a question of can we experiment and make him into a fullback by, you know, if we if we put him at fullback and we make him a fullback, and that didn't work for either of them. And uh, then he found Keenan, and he found this guy who was really good at playing fullback. And he just went, right, well, this really works. And he, he hasn't tend to, to eschew that sort of uh, approach. And I think with Ireland, uh, and it, it seems far more in 2015. So I was at an event recently where uh, Dan Levy was speaking, and he was asked a number of questions, and he sort of talks away. And, you know, they, he's not going to let too much go that's hostage to fortune but he did say that he, he wasn't that concerned about how Ireland did results wise but he did want the, com- the the combinations that were going to play in the World Cup he wanted them to be together during the Six Nations so even if you're going to make some changes for the Italian match uh, as Hugo was saying like you, you can't make that many from the starting 23 the additional five players who are unavailable Um so you're really just looking at maybe max three or four who are probably going to be made through injury. And they're not guys that are a million miles out there. And like, say you bring in one more guy to play in the back row. Say you decide, right, I'm going to play Coombs for argument's sake or um, in the back row. So I'm going to move Darius out of his best position, play Coombs in his best position. And he's going to play in the same back row with Darius and with Van der Fleer. I'm not going to change all of them because I never intend to play a match like that. Like this is this is, in any match of consequence, I want if Peter Romani is missing or if uh, uh, Keelan Doris is missing, I want the other two guys to be there, and the third guy I want to be familiar with playing with them. So I think if you look at the Japan match and the Japan match is just bad psychologically for us, like made little to no difference about how we'd have got on in the tournament anyway. I think we, we'd have been beaten in the quarterfinal had we played South Africa yeah, or New Zealand. Africa, yeah. um, but he ended up with Murray and Carty playing together who'd never played together beforehand and he ended up with a midfield of Carty, Farrell and Ringrose playing together who had never played together. Um, and Ireland struggled with with that. So you're sort of going, do you know what? It's, it's really the decisions that you make with the guys on the bench that they don't vary so much. And that's why discarding Carberry, having had him for all of the years so far, like that, that's a huge decision. And he and having not brought Ross Byrne to New Zealand to select him for the Six Nations is a huge decision. Um, but that's about as risky as it gets for Farrell. Now, if, if you go back to 2015, when we ended up playing Keith Earls in the centre, he doesn't tend to do that at all. There, there, there is better depth. Like, we had a second centre after Jared Payne at that party, and it was Darren Cave, and we just weren't going for it. So th- there's, 
one of the objectives after 2015 was just to build up the depth chart in Irish rugby. And that's why when you step back from it and you look at the emerging Ireland tour, you go, do you know what? That tour makes more and more sense now. The further away that you get. Always with the emerging always, Ireland tour. Always, always <laughs> with it. But you're going like, if we can get two or three players out of that tour who are viable contenders for a World Cup panel, tours is a success. Yeah, and it was interesting to see him call up um, Michael Milne and Roman Salanoa over other players who played more for their provinces. Uh, at, when he brought in his his subs, like he'd picked that emerging Ireland tour, he didn't go on it, and he goes, "Well, these are the guys I want to see. These two uh, quick, big, abrasive players who have like you know a good few gaps in their game, but he they were the, they were the chaps that he he selected to bring in." I was going to say something there with regards to. I think Arby might still go to the World Cup. I have to say, as as uh, if we bring three out halves, I think, I think he'll go. With, yeah, this was going to say. If you look back at over the teams who won the World Cup, the teams they've selected basically, they pick their first round team for their two hard group games. The other two or three games in the group are just like, that's when the other lads in your squad play, and then. Mo, apart from the New Zealand 2011 team, which had a few more changes, uh, but still a very s- solid team. Like the, the South African 2019 team was like they essentially played the same team for five their five big games in the tournament as it did in New Zealand in 2015. So you're really like injury does play a big part and keeping, but mostly it's like you should know what your team is. And if you if you look at it, another way for Farrell, he goes, well, Ross Byrne is the form out half an hour because Johnny Sexton doesn't really play. So Johnny's going to start the internationals. And if I don't have Ross in the Six Nations, he won't have had a chance to play with uh, anybody at Ireland level, mm-hmm. uh, even though, look, he plays with them for Leinster. So I kind of have to drop Carberry to take Carberry out of the equation, but he's not discarded for the World Cup. I just need Ross to get minutes as a part of a combination. Yeah, And... It also gives Carberry the opportunity to get more minutes with uh, Munster. He'll actually yeah. get more game time during the Six Nations. Like I think if it's, he's not in the Ireland squad. I think it's more likely, even though Crowley's in amongst it now. I think it's more likely that when you're if you're selecting three out halves, which you can do now with a thirty-three man squad, you can have three three hookers, three scrum halves, three tight heads, uh, and three out halves. I think he's going to go. Well, this fella's played loads of games for Ireland. You know, rather than Jack Crowley, who's played one and a half. But sorry, we're drifting off the point there. Well, not drifting, but it's entirely moved off the point. We've just gone wide, wide from the point. <laughs> um, we won't spend too long on it, but talk about refereeing. There's a kind of fundamental uh, conflict. There's a fundamental conflict between wanting the game to be faster paced and not when want to spend loads of time at breakdowns or stoppages or... Uh, television match officials and then complaining when they get some decisions wrong even with the deliberative process Um, how did you think Barnes did overall amazing brilliant thought he was thought he ref the game really well very good very authoritative Um, didn't get in the way it was a great game yeah yeah I think the Antonio decision was a red and I think we can all see that James is low James Lowe's toe touched the ground but he asked for clear evidence that it didn't or that it did touch the ground and no one showed it to him so like he had to give it a try because he gave it a try already 
Oh, 100%. You can't yeah. dispute that. Like, dude, he's looking for clear and obvious evidence. And go, it's neither clear nor obvious. So it's a try. It, it, was, it was quite a combination of circumstances in that both angles, in one angle, his foot was behind, it was obscured by the corner flag. Uh, when it was touching the ground, and in the other angle, it was there just was out of the shot. Somebody stood up. Yeah, there was, there was something over the camera, like chant on a grassy knoll. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, or like the cameraman had left his coat there or something. But again, his his foot was obscured uh, when it was in and touch it was from the camera shot. And like brush it was, of a few blades of grass. It was, anyway, it was a brush. And I, I, like one one of the things, even when you're watching it in slow motion, you can see the shadow of his foot on the ground. So it is. Like the appearance is there of his of his boot being off the grass all the way through, and you know, say la vie. And the Antonio one, like we we were a long way from it live, like pretty much I wouldn't say as far as you could be, but almost as far as you can be. And it happens quickly, and I just thought like, oh Jesus, that's a bone shuddering hit. So when I when I watched it back, I, and you can look at it objectively and it's slowed down you're going oh god that is a red you know because not that Weenie Antonio six foot four not that he's 23 stone it's just he doesn't fucking bend his doesn't bend his knees doesn't drop his hip level and yeah he socks uh, Rob Herring in the jaw and there's a lot of force and just because his arm because his arm brushes against Herring's ball carrying arm or his chest that's that's not enough mitigation but um, I, what I was going to say, sorry to, to, to cut across, it's a wider point. The, the if if they take the tackle line down to the armpit line, rather than the rather than everything below the neck, you can still be a little bit wrong. And instead of hitting some fella in the jaw, you're just going to hit him in the chest. So at the moment, you know when when ex-pros especially come out and say, oh, he's just got a, just a millisecond off there, it's very harsh to be sent off for that. You're going, well, that's sort of, that's an issue that that the lawmakers should look at very closely and resolve because if you have a margin for error, which is say, I don't know what that distance is, you know, 150 mil on me, so maybe you 150 to two mil, so you could still tackle somebody and it'd be just marginally off than what's allowed, but you don't end up fucking concussing them and you don't get sent off. You know, that instead of instead of hitting it from the top of the collarbone to the chin, it's like you hit them on the bottom of the peck to the middle of the peck. Yeah, I, I have to admit, even re-watching it, I was pretty pretty sympathetic to Burns' decision. I thought that Antonio hit him legit and it was he, he ended up getting him with the shoulder and the head, like when Herring's head bounced back towards him. Now Part of the, the sort of the conditional stuff about like, you know, did he bend? Was he lower? Was he upright? You're going, he did all the wrong things. Like yeah. You, and you could see how he would have been sent off for it. Um, and I think it's it's just that suggestion is if he can hit him just below the head and it's okay. Yeah, but, correct. But obviously concusses him. But if he hits him like a few mil, high, you know, a few cent, a few mil higher, really is what you're coming down to him and like takes his head off, that's bad. You're sort of going, there's absolutely no margin for error here yeah. whatsoever. So that that's exactly what you're suggesting. Yeah, is build in a margin. You have to safety. build in the margin because because what's what has been shown, I think, there's a number of articles after every incident like this. You know, rugby players just aren't learning. Like I've, I must have read a hundred of those, you know, over the last decade. And it's not that they're not learning; it's just fucking hard to do. 
you know, that this, sorry, I'm, I'm, on, <laughs> I'm on the radio. <laughs> this is, this, you know, this level is legal and this level is illegal. You know, just make the margin of error. I thought Conor Murray, we were, uh, I was talking about it with, uh, with a mate of mine from, um, from Munster the other day, and I was, we were both just saying, like, Conor Murray play was such hard in that game. You could see that he was huge, like, staggeringly motivated to try and, and get over the line. Um, I saw photographs on Sportsfile, I think it was, of Fabian Galtier had spoken to him briefly um, before the game. I thought it was a nice touch from Galtier. Obviously, he had heard about his father. And I, I, Murray has shown in the last two games that, um, and it's great to see, like I've said about 30 times, like he's Ireland's greatest ever scrum half. And um, it's it's really good to see him playing with such uh, fire, brio, and playing well. So I was really, really happy for him. Uh, and I was, I was disappointed. He got fucking stung out of a try. Murray Kinsley made a great point uh, in that he'd made a, a break uh, from a close-in rock, uh, basically under the French post in the first half, and he'd been tackled from blatantly offside positions by uh, Flamel and another another French player who I couldn't pick out even with reputed viewings. Um, and it was just the game was happening so quick. That uh, they France were penalised for another for, for another offence, but like that was a fucking cast iron penalty try, <laughs> absolutely cast iron, and that was a, a player. Sorry to skip around. Flamon was a guy I thought was the absolute going into the game. I was like, going, this fella is going to be the weak point in the French pack. He was their best player. He was their best forward. Um, not their best player. Zupon was their best player. He was their best forward, and I thought of all players, uh, to be shut down. Greg Aldridge was shut down. Because like his opposite man had a fucking stormer, but the rest of the pack did a job in Aldridge. I've never seen Aldridge have such a quiet game, um, which was revelation. I didn't think he was a guy who had quiet games. That was really interesting for me to see that. You're, you know, the Irish, the Irish team are capable of of keeping him out of a match. I think the problem with the French back row this present French back row, is that none of their names are sexy enough. Mm. Olivon is quite a good French name. Nah. Nah, it's no. Nah. It's no Caban. Nah, it's no. <laughs> it's not. It's not, it's not top echelon. Jelanche is a funny old name, isn't it? They don't, they it's like a Dutch or a, or a Brazilian name they or something. They need that Remy Martin fella back. <laughs> Remy Martin, Caban, and yes. somebody else. <laughs> Uh, I also want uh, on on he announced his retirement today. Jack McGrath, uh, I, I thought that he uh, he's worked so hard to get back. He's had the double hip resurfacing operation, and uh, he did everything he could to get back playing rugby. And it's sorry that he hasn't been able to make, it, but he had a you know he had a hell of a career, achieved a lot of things. And the last thing while we're talking about um, the uh, Irish scrum half for the women who suffered a brain hemorrhage three months ago. I did not know Dane, that. yeah. So, obviously, best best wishes to her and her recovery. Focus of attention in France is their gargantuan pack with three specialist props in the front row. Okay, Leinster versus Dragons now. <laughs> will the Dragons, will the Dragons uh, feel the team? 
Yeah, the Dragons are threatening to go on strike for the Leinster game. Um, Wales are threatening to go on strike for the English game instead. Um, I sent you guys the story from the... Uh, uh, for some for some weird reason, I sent you the one from the Daily Mail. Because uh, you love the mail. And then, <laughs> and then everyone else printed the story. And I was like, oh, I could have just waited 10 minutes and they would have... Um, but then I also sent a link to a, an article from 2002... Wales players threaten strike at Twickenham. Um, what's that? Twenty-one years ago. Oh, wow! Like a Louis Re- Louis Reese Samet ago, as it were. <laughs> uh, and it's all about the same things: the Welsh Rugby Union, the clubs, and uh, no one being able to organise the sport that they love so much in that country in a way that uh, the professional players can make a real fist of it. Yeah, the Welsh rugby to me, I wouldn't say it's a mystery, uh, but there's certain parts which I can't fill in the blanks, which I don't understand. The Welsh Rugby Union has a higher turnover than the IRFU. Their stadium has much less death in it than Lansdowne Road does. They have more events in their stadium. And I don't understand how... I know that uh, they fund their semi-pro and amateur game more directly than the IRFU do. For example, the IRFU give, give the clubs tickets and then the clubs sell the tickets. Whereas, whereas the Welsh, the WRU give the clubs money. Um, and it's I just don't understand how there's they can so obviously... When I say they, who do I mean? Say Welsh rugby supporters in general don't just look across at the Irish ships and go, oh, we should just adopt that and stop faffing around. Could I, you explained to me somewhat before this and you were um, from listening to other Welsh journalists, I think that the uh, club and amateur game or club and like the lower level game um, sort of takes precedence over the professional game. Yeah, the, the hierarchy, and again, this is gone from the guy Stefan, who's who was on the 42s podcast a number of weeks ago, um, is that the hierarchy in the Welsh Rugby Union is at, at the top. The top committee is composed predominantly of the community game, the amateur game, and then the professional game is a level below that. So the really... The control of the finances seems to be at the top committee and it seems to be from the, the community game, the amateurs, and and they just can't organize stuff properly. And they're they don't they don't believe in the in the regional concepts. Like they I don't know what they do believe in, but it it's it's such it really poorly serves their pro game and their pro players. Yeah, and the Welsh Rugby Union are low. They're low on credibility at the moment. You know, you had those disclosures made uh, a month ago about you know sexism, uh, bullying, etc. In their, you know, in their the top echelons of their of their union. Uh, so it's not as though that they are this higher-minded group who are all for the Corinthian atmosphere community. Uh, rugby is a, a community tool. It's like these lads seem like tools. 
and they're doing a fucking bad job of running the game as well. So I don't know how it's going to pan out. I don't think that Welsh, the Welsh players are going to not show up against England or take the field and then walk off it. Uh, I just don't see that happening, but I don't see how it gets resolved either. Like it's a really hard circle to square because my understanding is when the regions, the regions in the say two thousand five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, were funded by people who were had made money in in Wales. Um, so people local to Wales, people local to the communities who've been successful during booming economy, then. When the uh, the Great Recession happened, that money really dried up and nobody has been able to replace it. I think those are the players that Gatland used, the players who were developed in, you know, well-funded uh, regional academies. Those are the players who mostly Gatland used when the Ospreys were winning the league, when both the Ospreys and Cardiff were regular quarter-finalists in the Heineken Cup. And... Those regional academies just aren't there. They're not producing players. Well, they are there, but they're not producing the same caliber of players anymore. And the Welsh imports, the players that they used to get in, like Marty Alla, Jerry Collins, like that standard of player isn't there to 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 drive standards or set examples anymore. And it's um they're going mostly they're just going backwards. And people don't go to see them. I presume all that. I mean, it's very. You look at the Welsh team and you see Gatlin's come back and a lot of old players, and then he's chopped and changed. You have to think that that is definitely adding to the atmosphere of kind of hopelessness about the first team, as well as just the um, you know bad results under Peabach and and the, the provinces not or their regions not not you know doing particularly well in the league. You got to think that's hanging over the team as well. That Gatland is getting rid of old players, or no, just the general uncertainty about their careers. Oh God, yeah. Saint Andre going in like a wildcat. Now, the last segment, which I'm probably going to cut out. Go ahead. Go for but it. everyone knows how much we love listing off teams on this show. List a team. List a team for me. Um, England versus Wales, two thousand and two. Go ahead. Do you remember the score? Hazard a guess of the score. Where, uh, in, tw- in Twickenham, two, two, the one that they threatened to boycott. Uh, um, two thousand two the the year before England won the World Cup. Yeah, like forty five eight, something like that. Fifty points to ten for Wales for for England. Obviously. We fucking hockeyed Wales that year. That's our record score is fifty four. Yeah, something rather. That's pretty close. Pretty pleased with that. So what was the England team? England team. Uh, Jason Leonard, Steve Thompson, uh, Roundtree. Phil Vickery. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah. Uh, Phil, yeah, Phil Vickery. Uh, no. Johnson, Grewcock. Yes. Hill. No, no, no. Sorry, sorry. Graham Roundtree. Yes. Steve Thompson. Yes. Uh, Jason Leonard. No. Woodman. Phil Vickery. Woodman. No. Trevor Woodman. Dorian White. No, uh, Julian White. Yeah, there you go. Julian White. And then in the second row, Danny Grucock. Yes, Ben K instead of Jono. Oh, back row. Hilda. Yeah. Delario. Delario. Back. back. Joe Lewis Worsley. Moody. Lewis Moody instead Lewis of Moody. Now, uh, everyone's favorite. Kyron uh, Bracken. Yeah. 
Johnny Wilson. <laughs> yeah. In the back line. Ben uh, Cohen. Yeah. Tyndall and Greenwood. Yes, you're right. Tyndall and Greenwood. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Josh Lucy and Jason Robinson. Dan Luger on the right wing. Dan Luger. Ooh. Very surprising. Balch. Balch. No. Matt Perry. No. Austin Healy. Austin Healy at fullback. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, well, interestingly, you. interestingly though about that is we could guess. I think we guessed all the names. He told us Dan Luger, but like a lot of combinations there. A lot of the same guys used by Woodward in between ninety nine yeah. and two thousand. Like there's always it's always like two out of three in a unit. Or yeah, yeah. Welsh team. God, Shane Howard's a fullback. Keep going. Fuck <laughs> me, could be here a long time. Ireland want this one and feed it back. Dean holds it well. Kinnan, Dean again. Dean to Mullen. Mullen to McNeil. McNeil to England. McNeil's in. 